And welcome to G220 Radio. I I don't know what happened. Uh, sorry, there's like nothing, and then the music started, and now we're live. And I apologize. That's my computer's being weird. But this is G220 Radio. Radio. My name is Mike. I'm here with Ricky Gantz. Ricky, how are you doing this evening? Uh, doing well, Mike. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, got my King James Bible here in front of me. Was looking at uh, the <laughs> passage here in um, 2 Timothy 3, which we're all familiar with. We, we, we speak about it often when we're teaching our Sunday school classes or mm -hmm. speaking to people about the fact that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And that's what we want to talk about, the word of God today, the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be talking about the King James Bible specifically, as well as <clears throat> the, the other translations that are out there. And is there other good translations? Is it only King James? Should should what are the benefits of the King James and not the benefits of the King James or the other translations? And so therefore, um, or what are, yeah, what are the benefits of the other translations as well? And uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation, definitely. Yeah, this is a, a conversation. We have our we have a guest, uh, Mark Ward, who will be joining us um, to help to talk about this. He wrote a book called Authorize. Uh, it's a book my wife and I read last year. We really enjoy it. We hope that uh, this conversation reflects the kind of the voice of the book. Um, of something of charity towards the King James. Welcome, Mark, uh, to G220 Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me so much. And so for you, um, our listeners who may not know who are, um, you hold a PhD from New Testament Interpretation from Bob Jones, and you work for Faith Life. Probably most people would know it as Logos, but Faith Life is the parent company and the editor of the Bible Study Magazine. Um, and then authored the book authorized that we're going to talk about today. Um, we found out um, you also host a podcast and you've actually interviewed my pastor, um, Dr. Mitchell Ch Chase. I don't know him as Mitch. Oh, but, wow. I um, was listening to him yeah, today yeah. talk to my friend Kirk Miller on Kirk's podcast. Mitch is just fantastic. I saw him at ETS uh, last November, too. Yeah, you're blessed. Yeah. It's a good pastor. Uh, yes, he's an uh, amazing preacher. Um, he's only been getting better since he's been there. I think he's been there over, over 11 years now. And wow. then he preached through Galatians and you can kind of tell, I think it was far enough away after his PhD that wasn't as academic, not that he was <sighs> like overly academic, but really sure. got into that, a nice preaching, um, a method and yeah. And all the, I mean, he's just been publishing wild lately. So it's been exciting. Oh, yeah to see him um, flourish. Um, and so you wrote a book called Authorize. It's about the King James. And I liked how you start it. I think we should start it kind of this way. Um, just kind of talking about what, how God has used the King James kind of not only in American Christianity, but kind of English Christianity altogether. Yeah. Yeah, the Lord has used the King James mightily, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the Lord used the King James mightily in my own life. For the first 18 years of my life, it was essentially all that I read. I think I picked up a new King James at some point along the line, but in high school, I was in a King James-only church, and I had a good experience, and they taught me to read the Bible and taught me to value it and believe in it, and I haven't left those values or those beliefs and uh, until I was 18 and bought a comparative study Bible that had, you know, four different versions in parallel. I, I still got it up on my shelf back there. Um, I effectively read only the King James and still to this day, hundreds of its phrases and verses are in my mind and heart. And actually, when I search for a verse, you know, let's say I, I don't know the reference, you know, I just, I can remember the phrase, wherewith Christ hath made us free. That phrase almost always comes to me in King James English. So in Lagos, I search the King James kind of by default because it's the default in my own mind. Yeah, it's very interesting. My wife and I was just talking about this because we both grew up in King James only 
kind of environments. I was in an independent fundamental Baptist church that I would say was more King James heard. She grew up in a very King James only kind of environment. Like that was the translation of the Bible, but the benefit of it, when we got married, I use um, the ESV primarily today. Uh, I go out, we do evangelism on the streets. And when talking with people, I found it to be easier in my inter- interactions with people. Yeah. And so um, my favorite translation with or, um, my favorite edition of the ESV Bible is the creeds and confessions because of the size of the letters for my eyes. It just works out better than some of the other ones. But my point was um, when she came, when we got married, she was so used to knowing all these Bible verses in King James language that when she started to read the ESV, she had to stop and think because she just wanted to off the tip of her tongue, what she knew, the way it would uh, go and flow from the, all the memory uh, verses right. that she memorized or the verses she memorized, that um, it made her stop to think about what she was actually reading. And um, <clears throat> but the language is so poetic. It's beautiful language. Uh, I, I do believe uh, the, the the brothers and sisters in the church where where I grew up as, with as well were um, loved the Lord, loved His Word. I didn't really even know they were a King James only or a King James preferred church until because um, I grew up in that church, went away, was not genuinely a Christian, came back, and I went and bought a Bible. I just went to a bookstore and bought a Bible. It was a blue and brown Bible. It was like two tone. I didn't even know it was a translation. I didn't know there was different translation. I just grabbed the Bible and it was an NIV. And so they lovingly was like, here, let us get the Bible. You know, <laughs> let's get you a real Bible. Yeah. It got me a King James. But, um, but yeah, that was, that was kind of my experience. But yeah, I, for, for like five years, I just was in that King James Bible uh, until I started to do more with street ministry. And then that's when I kind of shifted to an ESV because of the language wise. But, yeah, actually, that particular story is what I hope will happen. You know, actually, it wouldn't be a big deal to me if the King James only world didn't listen to me at all, but instead, through evangelism, came to realize, you know, people really aren't understanding this like we are. Maybe the fault is not with them or with us. And the fault, maybe the fault is actually not with the King James translators, like they made mistakes, but the fault is the fault of language change. Mm -hmm. And it's that, but that area of language, of the study of language, I think is an area of general ignorance. And I'm not trying to put anybody down. Uh, One of my favorite evangelical linguists, uh, Moises Silva, godly man, taught many years in seminary, worked on uh, major reference works and commentaries. He said that we're, we all go around pretty much totally ignorant of the history of our language. You might know some select etymologies, but how many of the words in the last five sentences that I gave would I know the etymology to? Very, very few. There's nothing wrong with being ignorant of the history of your language. You know your language as it's spoken. But into that area of ignorance can creep some um, mistaken ideas about the way Bible translation should, should sound. Yeah, and I think that's kind of reading through your book and kind of developing that, that the King James, for its time, was an excellent translation. Absolutely. Um, but language changes. And right. and I think you even note in your book that even, and I lived in England for a time, American English is different than English on the uh, British Isles and how they talk. I remember the first time I went to a restaurant and they asked if I wanted crisps or chips. And I was like, chips, because, and <laughs> not thinking clearly, I was thinking I was getting potato chips. And it's obviously French fries. And I knew it beforehand, yeah. just being in a new place or something like that. Right. That's and, why we had to fight two wars with Britain in 1776 and following and in 1812. And they still haven't given in. They're still doing it wrong, right? Yeah. yeah. And so. But kind of thinking through, um, can you kind of give us a like brief history on kind of the King James and then kind of that development, I guess, up until the turn of the century when we start receiving yeah. the American Standard and all the other kind of translations that come from yeah. the tree? 
super briefly, and for those who want more information, you can go to my good friend Tim Berg's website, kjbhistory.com. He is the master of the history of the King James Version. I trust him highly, and I made that website for him because I was so insistent that he needs to get his good material out, and he's been, been, been putting out some good stuff. Anyway, the King James is a revision of a revision of a revision, depending on how many you count, of Tyndale's Bible. Most people people would be familiar with William Tyndale, the first modern English translator. And I use modern in its technical sense. He used early modern English, and we speak contemporary English, which is still part of the same period. So there are a lot of overlap and similarities, but we'll get to the differences later. Um, when the King James translators were asked by the king, King James, to revise what was called the Bishop's Bible of 1562. They were given 14 rules to follow, and those rules were pretty conservative. You know, Even back then, there was a fear that you can see in the King James preface, which I strongly encourage everyone interested in the King James to read. You can see a fear that people will distrust the revision work that the King James translators are about to you know, put forth to the public. So they make a conservative revision of the Bishop's Bible. And both because the King James translators did an excellent job and managed to catch English at really, you know, one of its literary peaks, and because it was endorsed or you could say authorized, although that's not really clear, by the king. There's actually debate about what that even means. It's sometimes called the authorized version. Um, but it had the perceived authority of King James and therefore uh, ruled the field. It was the one ring to rule them all in English Bible translation for about the next 300 years, starting a couple decades after it came out in 1611. The Geneva Bible of about 1599, I believe, was also commonly used, and it was actually brought over to America on the Mayflower, I'm told. Again, history is not really my big thing. I'm a philologist. I love words, uh, but I do know the outlines of the history fairly well. And then um, as English changed, you actually have Ben Franklin in the late 1700s, Noah Webster, the major American lexicographer, you know, writer of dictionaries, in the early 1800s, both of them noticing that English has changed. I have a quote from Ben Franklin in my book, and I've done a video on my YouTube channel about Noah Webster, who actually made a revision, an update of the King James Version in the 1830s because he saw that certain words have dropped out of the language since 1611 by his time, and some words were actually giving the wrong idea, wrong impression. I call those dead words and false friends. He named the exact same things. Um, so uh, even more time passes, though, before people start to feel that, I don't know, that pinch of the difficulty. And one of the major steps in the process actually relates to what we were talking about earlier. There was a Seattle-based businessman. I'm about an hour north of Seattle right now. His name was Howard Long, back in the 50s, who was giving the gospel to a fellow businessman in Portland and uh, quoted the King James. And the guy just burst out laughing and said, who talks like that? You know, and you can say, well, you're ignorant. You need to learn how to talk good. Or you can recognize, yeah, you know, nobody does talk like this anymore. Maybe it is time for a revision. That was the birth of the New International Version, actually, back in the 50s. It didn't come out until the 70s in total, New Testament and Old Testament. We also have the New American Standard Bible, which is itself a revision of a revision of a revision of the King James. That came out in 1971 and again in 1977 and again in 1995 and now again in 2020. Um, and really since the 70s, we've had something of a mushrooming of Bible translations. Among prominent ones, however, and evangelical ones, which I presume are the concern of most, if not all, of your listenership, um, there's probably about eight, ten that are commonly used. The King James, the New King James, the NASB, that's the New American Standard Bible, the Christian Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, I'm going off the top of my head here, the Net Bible, the New Living Translation, uh, I'm probably forgetting some, but th those are some of the standard evangelical English translations. So it isn't like there's an endless amount, although there are many, there are only a few that you can really find in any number of editions uh, from the evangelical Protestant world. And that's the situation that we've got right now in Bible translation. Yeah. I think one of the things that may confuse people, and I got this from your book, is the different editions of Bibles. 
So it may still be a King James Bible or a translation of an NASB or an ESV, but you have all these different firefighters Bibles, the policemen Bible, yes. soldiers Bible, a woman's Bible, a children's. And so they look at it and say, man, there's just, it's money-making business. So many Bibles, all these different, right. yeah, how do we know which one is legit? And this says King James, but then it's also making it to the towards women or geared towards you know children or you know what i mean and so i think that can overwhelm some people if they're not familiar with what they're looking at like i said when i walked into that bookstore as a yeah. uh, i was a false convert then i get saved and i go into a bookstore and i just see bibles on the shelf and i just grabbed a bible i wasn't looking right. at different translations and they're kind of like non-existent today but christian bookstores if you was to go right. into a christian bookstore you're going to see Here's a section for NASB. Here's a section for King James. And it can be overwhelming when you walk in, right. you know? Right. Oh, absolutely. And I think that it it's incumbent upon people like me who work in evangelical publishing. I was an academic editor for Lexham Press, and I'm still an honorary one. I still consult with them on some projects. Lexham Press is owned also by Faith Life. Um, it's incumbent on us to work to steward the trust of the church in these major translations. And although I'm a major you know, fan of having and using multiple evangelical English Bible translations, precisely because they've helped me understand God's word better over mm -hmm. the years, you know, comparing and reading multiple, uh, and that was, both, that was even before I studied Greek and Hebrew. But because of that, I'm a, I'm a big fan, but I've also pushed back in the publishing world, I've written articles where I've said, hey, it's about time to stop. And can the different publishers try to think of ways that they can work together to steward the trust of the church? Because a lot of people are confused and it isn't just the King James onlyists. Mm -hmm. Some of them are causing their own confusion. Uh, but I think a lot of people, mm -hmm. um, they don't understand. And I don't think that should mean, well, let's not do all these translations. I find them so valuable. And I don't think it's that hard to go to your pastor and ask, how come there's different translations? The job of somebody like me is in part to help pastors have some talking points mm -hmm. to give to people when they ask that question. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. I remember, I remember a time I was at Liberty University <laughs> and we had a biblical study symposium and the professor who organized it brought in dr wayne grudem for the esv ray clinton for at the time the holman christian now the christian standard and douglas dr douglas smith for the niv niv and one of the saddest parts about it was dr grudem who i respect i've read his book learned a lot early on in my christian uh christian faith from his systematic theology uh, kind of went after Douglas Moo in the NIV. This was just after they released the... Uh, 2011. Uh, 2011. Yeah. And kind of, I guess, erode that. Now you have like this this battle. Not that I agreed with all the NIV changes that happened that year. Um, but Douglas Moo was very much... We're trying to reach 90% of the English-speaking world. And right. to, to try to translate it accurately. And I think kind of thinking through that a little bit, I know this is towards the end of your book, but like how important is having like reading the Bible in the vernacular of the people? I know this is a big thing in the Reformation is we right. need the Bible in the vernacular. We have the Luther translating G German. You've already mentioned a whole bunch of Reformation era Bibles that are in English preceding the King James. How important kind of has the church thought of, or even in general, this importance of having God's word in the vernacular of the people? Yeah, I, I'm a Bible guy and a words guy, which I tend to think go together rather well. My interest in words is driven in large part by my interest in understanding the Bible and teaching it accurately, living it accurately. So I wish I knew more about history, but even I know that there are many ancient translations of the Bible that is not just pre-Christian like the Septuagint, but especially after the time of Christ, you have um, the Gothic translation, you have the um, 
There are ancient Coptic translations of the Bible. There is a set of languages in Ethiopia that descend from Ge'iz, which is a old translation of scripture as well. There's a Syriac. So uh, the, the Peshitta, which is actually the equivalent of the word Vulgate or common, um, which is actually kind of our the equivalent in our day would be standard, like English standard version. So um, the, the Christian church has always translated, and, and you got to ask why. Why has it translated the Bible, and why did it kind of stop? It never really stopped, even under Roman Catholic you know, rule. Um, it was mainly in England that Bible translation was outlawed, but it wasn't emphasized for a long time. Why did that happen? Okay, I, I go back to passages like Matthew 28. Jesus says, teach, you know, disciple all nations, um, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And that stops short of saying, translate the Bible. But in order for that to happen, realistically, some kind of translation is going to have to happen, at least of the things that Jesus has commanded. And I think it's a very natural corollary from just that Great Commission passage, that that Christians translate the Bible. I think it goes much further than that, though. How is it even possible? I was going through some Psalms today as I was editing an, editing an article, uh, and in Psalm 1, it says that the, the righteous man, how blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, etc., but he meditates on God's law day and night. Mm. How can you do that if you don't have it in your own language? How meaningless, how foolish and sad to be repeating a bunch of Latin words or is words, actually this happens too. People like to canonize, spiritualize a particular, sanctify a particular language and say that's a holy language. They do yeah. it with Arabic in Islam. I think we might have. Uh, but it's not with, I would call us true believers. We know that it isn't repeating the exact words, it's understanding the message. And translation is essential to that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's important, obviously, especially when you look at the Reformation, I've enjoyed studying church history, um, just having that, like Luther's first instinct after the Diet of Worms is translation, get it out. I think you right. can even use verses like, faith comes by hearing and hearing yes. by the word of God and yeah. And listening into, you know, I guess important to think about, and I guess kind of moving it back um, a little bit, you, you've kind of discussed it already a little bit is you have this early English, modern English in the King James. And now we have this contemporary, obviously, um, Sorry, I was going someplace and I just, it's contemporary English. Like, yeah. It's changed. Um, well, like what are some of the um, yeah. benefits I would say of the King James Bible? Like the things, even in your, your first chapter there where you talk about what we lose from it. Yeah. Um, again, this was a conversation I was having with my wife uh, earlier today because we came from those backgrounds, her more so than me in a, in a strongly it's KJV Bible, right? You know, it's ride or die with KJV. And, um, we talked about it. And one of the things she brought up was the literary quality, the death of literary thinking and, and yeah. the mind of, of today. Like it's not the same as, you know, many, many years ago. Uh, in, in your book, you talk about uh, one of the arguments that they use is a, I, I always heard them say it's a sixth grade level. In your book, you talk about right. being at a fifth grade level of understanding. But like today, we're not as literary in our reading. Like sometimes our kids want to read books like Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And we're like, no, how about you yeah. read this literary work instead? Right. So yeah. it's kind of like, I don't want to say a dumbing down of our society, but the literary work is just not there in the books that we have today. And yeah. so the thinking's not there. And I think you kind of miss some of that when you don't aren't in a, a, a translation like this, you know, yeah, if that makes know, sense. So some of the things that we kind of lose. Yeah. I, I don't want to take anything away. How could I, from the literary excellence of the King James version, I love it. It's beautiful. 
Um, I'm not as attuned to rhythms in language as some English professors that I've had are, but one of my most brilliant professors ever at Bob Jones University, his name was Ron Horton. He was a philosophy professor as well as an English professor. And uh, one time he just broke down the rhythms of an almost random verse in the Psalms. And it was evident, you know, and, and I can't do that. I'm not so good at that. I trust people like him when they say, there's something extra special about the quality of the King James. But in my book, I push back against the idea, both, maybe two ideas here, both that, okay, if they were at a literary peak, then we, then any change, uh, you know, um, away from that is necessarily degradation. And then secondarily, I push back against the idea that we don't have literary writing today. I think we absolutely do. I have some books up on my shelf right here by an author that I enjoy reading who um, would not sound as flowery, maybe, as the you know uh, language of Shakespeare and even of the King James does, tends to uh, sound to us. Um, but it's very dense. <laughs> it's very rich. It's mm. very literary. And I have certain writers that I go to for that beauty. I don't think literary writing is dead. I don't think the impulse to read it is dead either. In fact, you know, the sheer number of English readers who can produce and appreciate highly literary writing, I have to think has gone up simply because back in 1611, there was only one, effectively one island, plus a couple little colonies here and there of people who spoke this language called English. But now you've got Australia and the US and Canada. And um, actually I was in India recently. They speak English too. They're English, there's English signage everywhere. Um, so I, I think people are sort of used to giving a knee jerk reaction like, oh, you wanna get rid of the King James, which by the way, I do not. Um, I, I think that it ought not be used in inst institutional contexts. I don't think it should be, you know, required. You shouldn't require other people to use it. But if you want to use it, totally fine with me. In fact, I give more tools to help people read the King James on my YouTube channel than anybody else alive that I'm aware of. Um, but now I've lost where I was going to go with this. That, um, uh, well, now we're even. I forget what else <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah, I think kind of leading towards that you make um I, I found this helpful is that these reading score don't actually reflect properly the readability because not only has the language change and and I, I think you even used words that are a couple syllables which would make it show e be an easier readability but that just our syntax has changed right. our punctuation right. have changed and if we don't realize that that can also inhibit you know us to fully grasp right. what the authors are trying to say people think of language as a collection of words but that's only one portion of what a language is that's a huge portion obviously but there are some and so many other layers of language especially of written language it's fundamental to linguistics to see speech as the basic form of a language, but to see the written form as almost another language. You know, it, it has its own rules and ways of working and punctuation is a part of that, spelling is a part of that, word order and word relationship is a part of that. And so when people come up with these studies that say, well, the King James is at a fifth grade reading level or a sixth grade reading level, the one I commonly hear is fifth grade, so that's the one I used in my book. And I found people, you know, making this claim. Um, what they're actually doing, and I, I went and looked because I had no idea how are they determining this. I went and looked, and basically it boils down to, and it really doesn't boil down, like this is it. it it's not complex. It's shorter words and shorter sentences give a lower reading level score, and longer words and longer sentences give a higher reading level score. Um, and I've questioned whether looking at only sentence length and word length are a sufficient means of judging the readability of a document. And I, I think I proved conclusively that that's not the case. I even had a guy who contacted me after he read my book and he said, I've been a King James defender for a lot of years and I've used that argument. I will not use that argument again. And I'm sorry I did. He was persuaded. Uh, I still see that argument out there uh, plenty. And some of the major figures who've used it, you know, haven't retracted it. 
But, uh, and I'm not going to say that everything I argued in my book, I proved conclusively, but that was one of the things that I felt like, okay, I really can't think of anything someone could say to respond to this. The King James is not at a fifth grade reading level. Uh, another thing I, I, this is one thing I was going to say before I forgot, is when people say to me, well, the modern version has dumbed down the language. Um, I say, let's get specific, okay? Let's look at Isaiah 14, 23. It says, I will sweep them with the besom of destruction in the King James Version. I've got it right here. And in the modern versions like the NASB, it'll say something like, I will sweep them with the broom of destruction. And I just want to ask, is broom a word for dummies? Is broom like dumbing down the language? Do you refuse to use the word broom in formal context because it's a dumb word? No. <laughs> Second question, do you know the word besom? Uh, no. Then which word should we use? People want to talk in sweeping generalities about the King James and about modern versions. I want to try to force people and help people to get concrete. Let's talk about individual dead words, words that we no longer use in English. And let's talk about my main concept, false friends, words that we don't know we don't know. That again is, and I'm sure we'll have time to talk about it, my, my major contribution. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Um, when my wife and I were dating and I would go visit her at her church and we would sit there and I, I honestly have, I think the King James is a beautiful translation. I used it, like I said, for many years after I came to genuine faith, when that nice lady in my church said, let me get you a Bible and gave me this King James Bible that was falling apart by the time I was done with it and moved to an, an ESV. But, um, when I would go with my wife and they would spend all this time breaking down, a passage to like, so you can understand what these words were. I would just show her my ESV and say, it says it right there. Like all the time that he had in it. And I don't want to say it's wasted time. You're trying to teach your people, but then I've sat under people who are preaching from a more modern translation and they're able to put more behind what is being stated there in the context, rather than trying to explain a word, you know what I right. mean? And so, yeah, again, if, if somebody wants to use a King James Bible, completely fine with it. I think as long as you're reading the Bible, praise God, right? And you're learning God's word. But I, I was trying to explain this because again, the background that she was coming out of was so my, or, uh, heavy minded towards any other translation was just bad. And I'm like, he just broke down and it came to the same word that's here. Right. So just trying to show that like, again, you're, you're spending all this time, like you was talking about these words, they change, but what is the meaning here? And then as we will probably talk about later, you're, you're, uh, the idea of words change over time and you, you don't understand certain things. I know when I evangelize and I'm speaking to people that are critics of the Bible overall, critics of Christianity, they'll throw things out that sometimes as a believer, you may not even know, be aware of yourself. Like, what do you mean there's a unicorn in the Bible? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I never knew there was a unicorn in the Bible, but then you try to break it down to understand, well, what is that meaning? so that you can explain it in those interactions and those conversations you have with people who are challenging the word of God. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's all good. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. And I think that uh, over time, when people have experiences like that, when they realize, oh, you know, all that my pastor just went on to explain and sitting right here in my friend's ESV, or for example, I get contacted on a regular basis by, um, people who have been in King James only circles. And sometimes they're missionaries who go to a foreign country, they learn another language, and they see the way it's worded in the language of, you know, in the Bible that's in the language of that people and realize, okay, maybe I can't be so, you know, dogmatic that the way the King James puts it is exactly right and nobody else can say it differently because I see how they're saying it differently, but it says the same thing, you know? Mm -hmm. or. Or they'll read along in the translation of the local language, you know, French or German or whatever, and they'll come to realize, wow, um, now I understand what that passage was saying when, because of the King James's archaisms, I didn't quite get it. But that often reading another translation, whatever it is, will help you realize what the King James was trying to communicate. So you realize, okay, they, they didn't do anything wrong. They were just using English as it then was rather than as it now is. Yeah. 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 I think moving towards your, your idea of false friends. Um, I think at least for me as, as one who's learned Greek and Hebrew, um, and you get kind of 
at least at Southern Seminary, where I learned that you're always trying to um, figure out that that meaning, what it means kind of even today um, with it. This, you know, kind of describe a little bit what you mean when you say you have like the King James has these false friends. Yeah. Boy, I think of that passage where Paul says, um, you know, that is the very thing that we were eager to do. I want to say that's in Acts 15, you know, and the Jerusalem Council says to remember the poor. Well, the very thing I was eager to do was explain false friends. Uh, I don't seem to ever get tired of it. And I have a series on my YouTube channel, which uh, is called 50 False Friends in the King James Version. And I'm up to, I was writing the script for number 71 today, and I've got many more coming. I've got a book coming out, Lord willing, KJV words, you don't know, you don't know. And it's all about false friends. And I think it helps to set it up in distinction to dead words, because it's not just that the King James here includes words that we know we don't know, like besom, chambering, and emerald. It's that the King James contains words we don't know we don't know. And uh, in fact, let me ask you guys, okay? I'm not trying to embarrass anybody because I'm about to reveal a misunderstanding I had until this very day when somebody sent me an email. Or was it yesterday? It was either today or yesterday. Today's Tuesday. It was probably yesterday. Um, okay, it says in Genesis 3.15 in the King James. In fact, I might as well just pull it up. I'm about to ask you guys, just give me your honest opinion, what you think a given word means. This is a famous verse. <clears throat> Try not to remember that you've read this in other translations or in Hebrew, okay? Okay. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And one more passage, Isaiah 53, I think it's 4 or 5. Um, I remember it, but I want to read it to make sure I get it exactly right. Oops, I got into Jeremiah there. It also uses the word bruise here in Isaiah 53, and I'm taking so long to get there. Okay, almost there. Here we go, Isaiah 55, Isaiah 53. Um, surely, no, no, no. Okay, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. What does bruised mean? I mean, I would say bruise would kind of mean that you got hurt, and there's some, this is, I guess, more of an example, so it's not a definition. But, like, you have... Um, discoloration? Discoloration, yeah, discoloration mm -hmm. of skin where an impact would have happened. Right. Yeah, I think I would uh, I would say probably the same thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. just looking at it, if I was just reading that, you're, you're, you're thinking of what happens when I bump into something or I bang my knee, right. you know, or fall down, you get a bruise. Maybe viewers get some... to okay. You can you hear me? You got me. Still? Yeah, it was kind of. Um, I think we lost you there for a little bit. Okay, I was saying that you guys are going to get free content that hasn't gone out to my YouTube channel viewership yet, uh, and any of them who are watching this, they get a sneak peek. But that is absolutely how I always took the word. But you might have noticed as you read along in your ESV. I can't remember what the NASB says. I bet you it's similar, but in uh, both of those verses, I believe, it uses the word crushed instead of the word bruised. And I'm going to check it. Genesis 3. Got my ESV here. Um, I'm nearly certain that I'm right because I've read this passage so many times. And here's my favorite edition of the ESV. It's the single column legacy heirloom edition. I love my single column Bibles. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall... Oh, no, my goodness. I'm shocked. It uses the word bruise. And how about in Isaiah? Well, this is why I was in the middle of doing this. <laughs> I am, uh, I'm at a little bit of a loss, but I'm going to hold my own here because I've done this many, many times. Isaiah 53. Okay, actually, that actually brings up a minor footnote here. One of the reasons I use the ESV is because I love the King James. This, this does tend to be my default Bible. Um, this particular edition was given to me by someone... Uh, a mentor of mine that I just had on my channel, one of my uh, assistant pastors. That's a reason I use it too. But because it sticks to the King James pretty closely is one of the reasons I use it. Um, it says, yes, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And I won't take the time to look at the NASB right now. But typically in the modern translations my that I've checked so far, they're using the word crushed in both of those cases. Because it's a little bit funny, right? Have you ever wondered this? The, the seed of the woman 
will have his heel bruised. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Actually, I've got bruising on my ankle right now because I played Ultimate Frisbee in the Mud last week. Um, I'm having to miss Ultimate tonight in part because of that. I'm still not quite, I'm still limping a little bit. But it's it's kind of funny to say that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Like, that's not a big deal, right? You know, we don't mm. want him to bruise the head of the serpent. We want him to do worse than that. Um, in fact, the uh, rendering crush, boy, that sounds better, right? Doesn't it? And when it comes to Isaiah 53, um, God, the father, was pleased to not just bruise the son. He, he, he was dead. <laughs> he was mm-hmm. crushed. Um, and, and in fact, if you look up those Hebrew words, there are actually two different Hebrew words in those cases. I do think a better rendering would be crushed. So now you're left with the question, did the King James translators commit an error? Or would there, did they have a somewhat different judgment? Or third, you know, another option would be, and this is the thing that people don't think to consider, has the meaning of the word bruise changed over time? Has its available set of senses altered because of the forces of language change? And in fact, if you go look in the Oxford English Dictionary and look up the word bruised, you will see that in the past, it could mean crushed. So you'd have examples, and I just came up with this. You know what? I'm going to have to read this, or it's not going to, not going to make as much sense. Um, but there's an example in. I've got it right here. It'll take me just a second. And they they give uh, citations. Um, okay, for example, the Book of Common Prayer in 1549, which might have been using Coverdale. I'm not sure. Uh, translated Psalm. Uh, I think this is 110. Thou shalt bruise them with a rod of iron and break them in pieces like a potter's vessel. If bruise means discoloration of the skin, that doesn't fit very well. You don't bruise people with a rod of iron. You crush them. Um, Here's another one. In Shakespeare, Richard III, it says, bruised underneath the yoke of tyranny. It's crushed. That You're you're crushed underneath the yoke. Um, I'm not able, this is uh, another play in 1654, I am not able for to underbear the weight of sorrow which doth bruise my soul. Or, here's a good one, I just came to this, um, where did it go? Um, okay, I love this. In 1590, someone was writing uh, a book called Most Dangerous Adventure, and he wrote, had his foot once slipped, he would have been bruised in pieces. That makes no sense. That's like saying, mm-hmm. I have a bicycle with three wheels. I'm a married bachelor, you know? Um, to be bruised in pieces, that shows that that word at that time meant crushed, or at least that was one of its available senses. So it sure seems to me that what the King James translators were trying to say in their English was crushed. That's the way we would say it in our English. That is a false friend because you don't know you don't know that word. You think you do. You read past bruised and you think, well, I know what a bruise is. Who doesn't know what a bruise is? But so you don't bother to look it up. Why would you? Um, You already understand it. Who looks up words that they already know the meaning of? But if you look carefully at the history of English, the, the meaning of the underlying Hebrew and Greek words in many cases, and I document many, many of these. I'm again up to over 70 on my YouTube channel. If you do that, you'll discover, oh, (laughs) the King James translators actually meant the very same thing that the modern translators say. They actually don't differ. They're just speaking to two different audiences who speak two overlapping but distinct Englishes. That's a false friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We did have a question here from a Wesley uh, Taylor who was asking if um, or when your book was coming out? Oh, that you mentioned. You know, I have to finish it first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm still. I'm hopeful that it might come out by the end of 2023. Right now, it's looking more like 2024. My, I'm a year and a half late on my contract. I've been so mm. busy. Actually, my YouTube channel is taking up almost all of my, you know, really extra time. But just the other day, I got started again. I have the opener, the introduction written, and the first chapter and the structure all done. And basically, all the material is there. I just have to shape it into uh, book form. So sorry, I wish I could say it's coming out real soon, but it might be a little while. But definitely a lot of content there on the YouTube channel that can be very helpful to those who are you know, trying to um, navigate through 
you know, the, the, the King James translation versus other translations and some of the arguments they may hear, um, some of the, the benefits of, you know, these different translations and whatnot. It's definitely yeah. there on the channel. It's oh, under yeah. the same name, Mark Ward. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, yep. It's all there. Well, we got about, uh, seven minutes or so left here in the program. So Mike, uh, any, um, final questions you might have or. Um, I don't put you on the spot. There. I wish I, I was, yeah, I know. I feel kind of bad because it's been a year since we read, my wife and I read your book. And um, I mean, as soon as we started, we're like, we like, this is going to be good. Because, and hopefully we've met this kind of in our tenor is we're not here to bash the King James. Not at all. And right. to, to, to make it, it's, like you should move on, find something new type of ideal, but to, I mean, it just celebrate its 400. Like that's how, how many translations still in use after 400 years now, maybe, right. you know, being it's connected to the church of England and you have some of that. Um, but you kind of think through um, that, you know, it still has its value. As, as we mentioned. And so yeah. I guess maybe um, we have a question right here from a viewer. Yeah. If we're, uh, yeah. if we're waiting for one, I see this born again, RN, do you mind if I take it or should no, I do absolutely. it? Yeah. Go, for it. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, cue for Dr. Ward. What are his thoughts about Mark 16, nine to 10? I think you probably meant 16, nine to 20. Is it authentic? Verse 9 says Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, but Matthew records he appeared to Mary and the other women. Um, I'm not prepared to speak in detail about the many questions related to Mark 16, 9 to 20. I will give two broad answers, and the, the latter will, Lord willing, give you some further avenues of study. The first broad answer is, this is very important, viewers out there, whether you are King James only yourself, or probably more likely, you speak to King James only brothers and sisters in Christ. I encourage you to set aside the issue of text. That's what we're dealing with here. Among all the copies of the Greek New Testament and that have been passed down to us in manuscript form, and then pulled together, culled together in printed editions, we end up with what I would call minor variations. Mark 16, 9 to 20 is one of the two most significant variations. The other is John 7, 53 to 8, 11. Those are by far the biggest passages that differ among Greek manuscripts. And they differ between these two major editions of the Greek New Testament. This is the one that underlies the King James. Generally speaking, it's called the Textus Receptus. This is the one that underlines, underlies most of uh, today's modern translations aside from the New King James and Modern English Version. And this one says that probably Mark 16, 9 to 20 was not original. This one says that it was original. It was included in the original copy of the Gospel of Mark and therefore is inspired and should be in our Bible translations. Um, I think you can totally skip this debate. You can totally set it aside because I think far more important and far more clear in Scripture is the answer to the question, what, what kind of language should we use in our Bible translations? I think 1 Corinthians 14 teaches that edification requires intelligibility. That's what the Bible tells us. That directs me away from insisting on the exclusive use of a 400-year-old Bible translation that uses a bunch of dead words and false friends that people don't understand fully anymore. I'm not saying the King James is unintelligible. I'm saying it's sufficiently unintelligible that it no longer should be required uh, uh, in institutional contexts, okay? So um, if you want to use the same Greek New Testament that underlies the King James, you can use the New King James Version or the Modern English Version or the Simplified KJV or the KJV Easy Read or any of a number of other King James updates that update the King James into the English we speak today and therefore obey 1 Corinthians 14. Edification requires intelligibility. That's the first big answer. We don't even have to talk about this. You prefer the Texas Receptus? Totally fine. Use the New King James, okay? Second answer is, if you want to study this, if you want to dig into it, um, I have a website, kjvparallelbible.org, that I and a group of volunteers put together where we translate effectively all of the differences 
between these two and, and make them visible to the English reader. And I would strongly encourage you to go through the study guide that I wrote for that site um, and try to understand what's going on. And then I have some recommended resources at that site as well. That's my answer to that question. So we had another one. Um, what advice would you give to graciously discuss kind of these issues with those who are KJV only? I, Especially you know, if they're loved ones. Yeah, right. you know, obviously, because... Yeah, that, that's tough, isn't it? You know, um, this, this, this gets really touchy. I have loved ones that, thankfully, we don't disagree about this, but, you know, everybody's got some disagreements with their loved ones. And on the rare times when I felt I needed to bring up a, a disagreement, um, I was very gentle and very charitable and very, you know, gracious. Lord willing, that was what I was praying for and trying to do. Um, I would encourage all of those things. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You're going to need all of those fruit if you're going to bring up uh, a matter like this. I wrote my book in order to be the kind of thing that you could hand to your King James-only brother-in-law and say, here, read this. And I would encourage you, see if you can do a trade. Um, don't let them give you Gail Ripplinger because that's not fair. My book is a lot shorter than Gail Ripplinger's. Um, but if there's a book that they would want you to read, fine, do it. If that's the price of getting them to read my book, great. I don't care about my book sales, right? I don't care at all about money, royalties. Money that I've gotten from that book has gone to family needs, but also to YouTube equipment to get out this message some more. It's not cheap, actually. I'm looking at a pretty nice camera right here. That's why I have the nice book in the background and this nice light that somebody bought me for this, this ministry. But I, I would encourage you to use my materials. I would watch my videos. I'm not the only person to listen to. Um, there's a lot of other great stuff out there. But right now, I'm one who's focusing on it more than anybody else that I know of on this side, except for some of my own friends like Tim Berg. Um, I, would also, I would also encourage you to build on common ground. And here's the most important common ground. They believe that the Bible is God's word. Here's the second most important common ground. They actually do believe that you should try to understand the Bible. And if you can show them places where they thought they understood, but actually they didn't, I think true Christians might actually humbly listen, start to realize, wow, you know, my desire to understand God's word actually uh, is greater than my desire to defend myself in this case. Don't go after them publicly. Go to them privately. Mention 1 Corinthians 14, edification requires intelligibility, and mention dead words and false friends. I, these concepts that are, are the talking points I'm trying to give to the church so that you can reach out to your King James-only brother-in-law. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely, think... uh, it can be definitely a touchy, touchy subject. And I think we all can learn to, to be more gracious as the Lord works on us in those conversations um, to seek to engage with our loved ones in such a way that is displaying humility, compassion towards them, um, because ultimately our desire should be to glorify the Lord and to help them uh, to see the, the maybe even the vast amount that they're not understanding, the false friends that, that could be you know overlooked that they don't even realize um, because they're so heavy onto a certain translation but also then I, seeing the beauty of yeah. the the language and the literary work within the king james translation as well yeah, and understanding if somebody has grown up for their 20 30 40 years as a christian and that's the translation that they've used their whole life it's hard to just try to move to something else so also Absolutely. respecting that as well you know give them time because it took you time it took me yeah. time and i was young mm -hmm. right yeah i'm totally with you so Go ahead, Mike. I did. I remember one question that I wanted to ask. Um, have you received a lot of, like, kind of from those who hold to maybe even King James onlyism, um, kind of critiques about your book? Like, have there been dialogues outside? I haven't researched it, so I'm not um, saying like I, I know this thing or like sure. that. But just in general. I guess, how has kind of the King James only received your book and and kind of discussing this? I mean, and it is an important topic for us to be thinking yeah. about. Yeah, I did a video about this um, 
about a year or so ago, and it falls into three broad categories. I think that um, the the let's say the the medium sized category is sinful anger. I get a lot of flames from people. I get people telling me I'm not saved all the time because I'm encouraging people not to be King James only. Um, I get all kinds of ad hominem stuff, sometimes extremely insulting, mostly not. Mostly they're they true Christians and they're restrained, but they're angry. Um, that happens a lot. That's the medium size. The, the biggest group actually tends to be those who are appreciative. And I've, I've gotten an overwhelming amount of uh, email and you know messages on Facebook from people who are grateful. They tend to be 40 and under, and a lot of them are pastors, almost all of them men, not all, but almost all. And the, a lot of them, nearly all of them, were trained within King James-only institutions. I've gotten a lot of thoughtful, uh, gracious feedback from them, and they're, they're grateful. I also am grateful to say they are grateful to their King James-only pastors and, and leaders and teachers. They recognize the difference now, but they don't throw them under the bus. Um, it's really rare that I encounter that. Then I do. I do encounter a small, very small amount of thoughtful interaction from a place of disagreement. And there are just a few figures that I can mention, several of whom have popped up a lot in the comments on my YouTube channel that I feel like have given me, have, have actually listened and tried to respond. You know, I'm not persuaded by their viewpoint, but among the more important things that I think they've pointed out, I've got a really intelligent guy. I know his real name, but he comments under a pseudonym on my YouTube channel. Uh, we've ta had two long talks on the phone. He's a follower of Peter Ruckman, who is, in my mind, one of the worst King James onlyists ever. He, I have called him vile, and I don't toss that out lightly. Um, if you can't use a Bible word, you know, or a, uh, a word like malice to describe this man, I don't know what else you can use. But this this guy I've been talking to is a follower of Peter Ruckman, and yet isn't like him in character. He thoughtfully engages. He's an intelligent guy. Well, Peter Ruckman was intelligent too, but he was just mean. This guy that I've gone back and forth with, I think the good point that he makes is there's a real value to having one common standard. And not having that common standard brings confusion. I already said this in my book. I acknowledge that. But I think you have to weigh that value on the scale against the value of reading the Bible in your own language. And in my mind, I think that value outweighs it. Um, and I also think we don't have a pope who can tell us in evangelicalism which Bible we should now use. I, under by what mechanism are you going to get everybody to use the same Bible and reject all the others? Um, so I think he's made some good points, but I, I don't see how we can get there. And I don't see that the Bible requires us to, to do this. A multi-translation situation has exist, existed for a long time. I've had also people push back against individual false friends, and, and maybe I'm wrong about some of them. That's totally fine. Uh, but I, mostly I feel like the major institutions of King James onlyism have ignored me. Um, have not engaged my arguments in any detail. I'm not aware, for example, that my name is coming up in classes at King James Only Colleges yet. I have a feeling that's coming fairly soon. And then I'd be really interested to hear, because sometimes the students send me these things. They send me their notes from class. Uh, I'd be really interested to hear what the professors say. All right, so to wrap it up, I have a quick question. Um, I don't know if you can answer it quickly. If you can... You know, that'd be great. If not, I, I completely understand because I'm throwing it out there and just thinking about it. <clears throat> the the idea that we we can't we, we shouldn't be regulating and telling people this is the translation you have to use within a church. Like in our church, we have people that use different translations. But what could be the benefit of a church reading together in the same translation? Like say when you do Bible reading, or your the benefit that could be there um, for all being on the same page and not have, you're standing up to read and one person's saying something different here and something different here. It's all in unison, you know. Um, but then after yeah. that, um, answer that however you 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 want to, the time you want to take on that. But then I want you to give us um, how we can reach out to you, how we can find your channel, how we can find your books and things like that, how people can, you know, reach out to you and any last words, thoughts that you would want to say before we close out the program. And we want to thank you again sure. for coming on and taking the time yeah. uh, to, to share with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank my family who are all quietly waiting in the living room till dad can come and 
for the family time, um, especially my wife, thank her. I would say that you really answered your first question yourself. Obviously, having the same wording is essential for you know public corporate reading of scripture. And that weighs something, right? Um, I would even make the scale go down a little further by saying it weighs something significant. It sure did in my life that the King James wording was reinforced every time I heard the Bible from my pastor in sermons, but also in um, not just scripture memory in my Christian school, but any kind of mention of the Bible at all was in King James English. So I ended up memorizing a bunch of phrases like how long halt ye between two opinions, which is one of my key false friends, not because I think it was ever a, you know, a memory verse, but because it was just in the air. I learned it by osmosis. And that's easier to do, I assume, if the same wording is reinforced over and over again. That weighs something. But I think you just have to weigh those things against the other values. And I, I think that edification requires intelligibility weighs more than those things. If you're concerned about everybody reading the same wording, print it out in the bulletin and hand it out to them. If you're concerned about everybody memorizing the same wording, I think your concern is misplaced. I think it's okay and actually good that people would memorize uh, a given Bible passage in several different faithful good translations. My home church in Greenville, South Carolina printed out memory cards in the King James, New American Standard, New King James, I can't remember, maybe the ESV I think was later added. Yeah, and you know, the church did not split and people kept growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and nobody ever said, well, my Bible says this, wham, you know, it didn't cause trouble. It's okay. People aren't going to die. Church is not going to split over this if you teach them well, as my pastor certainly did. In fact, a lot of my ministry is just repeating stuff that my, my major mentor, my pastor for 18 years in South Carolina uh, did. You also asked, how can people follow me? Uh, just search Mark Ward KJV. And if you see a video pop up on YouTube that says fake scholar Mark Ward exposed, do kindly skip that one and go on to my own channel. Uh, I don't think that one's actually up on YouTube anymore, but a guy in my church was searching for our sermons during COVID on YouTube because we couldn't meet for a little while in Washington State, and he stumbled across that, and he just laughed, thankfully. Uh, he didn't take it seriously. But um, there are some folks critical of me on YouTube. That's totally fine. YouTube is a free country. But yeah. I have tons of YouTube videos out there. My book is out there. I've written over... Uh, 200 something articles for the Logos blog. Uh, I do a fair bit of writing of articles here and there. I kind of can't stop myself. Um, I have my own blog that's mostly moribund, but my YouTube channel is the place where I'm really focusing my energies right now. And if anybody finds benefit in some of the things that I've talked about, I think it's especially important to be concrete about, uh, about in individual words and passages in the King James that are difficult to understand or even unintelligible, uh, rather than giving sweeping generalizations. And, and I'd like to think that my channel is probably the one place on the internet that you can go to get the firmest grounding in concrete examples of what language change does to our current ability to understand the King James Version. I, I don't know of anybody else who's trying to do that sort of thing. That's where I'd point people, my YouTube yeah. channel. Well, thank you again for coming on and thank your family for the time that you've given us tonight. We appreciate it. Uh, there was a lot there that I think we can glean from and learn from. And again, we want to point you over to Mark Ward's channels there and his blogs, uh, his articles to help you as you navigate through this. Thanks again uh, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Say hi to your pastor, Mitch Chase, for me. I will. Actually, I'm currently not in Louisville. Uh, oh, we had some your old pastor. Issues, but... Well, no. Long Still story. Pastor, yeah. I'll see him. Okay. I'll see him this right. Sunday for the first time in like two months. So. Okay. Okay. Say so, hi to him yeah, for me. That would be great. I will. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right. Yep. Thanks again. Thanks. Uh, next week on G220 Radio, we will have uh, Jeffrey Dollar on the program. Uh, we're going to be talking about the IFB. Uh, and then, um, as you've seen in the chat room here, the Born Again RN, that is our friend Steve Christie. He will be on at the end of the month to talk about purgatory popes and praying to the saints. And so we're going to talk about that. And so we've got a, a month planned here. Um, Mike will not be with us next week, I believe, but um, we're still going to have a good program. And so we hope to see you then. Until then, God bless and good night.